Hello, my name is Jacob. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I'll be reading scripture this morning. 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. When David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing and gave it to David, and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result, Saul sent him over the army, and all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. 1 Samuel 19, 1-4 Saul spoke with his son Jonathan and with all his servants about killing David. But Saul's son Jonathan took great delight in David. Jonathan told David, My father Saul is trying to kill you. Therefore, be on guard tomorrow morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand before my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father Saul, saying to him, The king should not sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have been of good service to you. 2 Samuel 16, 25-26 How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. So when the teaching team and I was planning out the summer about the different weird people that we wanted to talk about, we initially planned someone else for today. And after we had our Pride Sunday in June, um, someone on the teaching team said, I think when we actually celebrate Pride in Peoria, that we should speak Uh, about something to do with being gay or queer or whatever on that Sunday as well. So let me back up a little bit. Back in May, I've told you about my my lunch one day with Rabbi Bryna uh, Milkow here in town, and I told her what we were doing this summer, weird people doing weird things, and I asked her what she thought about that, and she loved it. And I asked her, what would you teach? about weird people doing weird things. She said, oh, without a doubt, David and Jonathan. And I said, oh, that there's some scholarship that they're gay? She said, oh, yes, 100%. Well, I heard this years ago when I was in my undergrad in religious studies, but it was like a peripheral thing. Like I heard people talk about it in class, but I was like, my mind was too full of other things to really pursue it. So I knew it was out there, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. So when I mentioned it to the teaching team, I said, well, what about David and Jonathan? And everybody went really quiet. And they were all like, not it, not it, not it. So guess who's it? That would be me. So I wanted to give you a little bit of a backdrop as to why we're going to talk about this this morning. Now, I want you to imagine that you are not a person of Christian faith, that you have not, you don't have a whole lot of knowledge, if any, about the Bible. King David is a little bit of a different concept for you. And who's Jonathan? You just read those scriptures. This is you, okay? 
What did you hear when you heard those scriptures being read? What kind of relationship would you have assumed David and Jonathan had? Yes. Yes, possibly gay because their love surpassed the love of women. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Sarah says they were like soulmates. Anyone else? Yeah. They were scared. Good. Anyone else? Okay, we're going to dive in. But what I am going to do, and this is why I brought this chair out here today, I want you to know, first of all, I don't think that I could teach this today in any other pulpit church in America, maybe a few, but certainly not the churches I come from. And second of all, there's all this is only one interpretation that I'm going to share with you this morning. I don't know that it's the right one because nobody knows for sure, okay? So can you go here with me for just a little bit and just imagine what if this story about David and Jonathan is more than friends and I'm going to sit (laughs) so I don't get too big for my britches. All right. We read a little bit about in 1 Samuel 18 and 19 and in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1. But in in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, we get a full chapter of the story of David and Jonathan. Basically, the king, who is Saul, this is Jonathan's father, David starts winning battles, and the people like David. How many of you saw King David with Richard Gere back in 85 on TV? Am I the only one in the room? I mean, it was Richard Gere, people. I mean, back in the day. Anyway, when I think of, when I think of David, I think of Richard Gere. Anyway, I just want you to know that. I'm glad my husband's not here today. So David is kind of a big deal, and the people love him. And Saul becomes jealous of him. So Saul decides to get rid of him. And Jonathan finds out about it. Jonathan loves David and does not want him to be harmed. So he helps David get away from his father. In verse 41 of chapter 20, we read, David rose from beside the stone heap and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept with each other. David wept the more. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since both of us have sworn in the name of the Lord. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. He got up and left, and Jonathan went into the city. Now, something that's been lost upon me all these years of studying King David and King Saul, Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne. That's how it worked. But Jonathan sensed immediately something different about David. David was the eighth child of a nobody in the middle of nowhere. Why in the world would this guy possibly be king? when it was really Jonathan's throne. But he saw something in David, 
and it sparks something within him. Now, the language used to describe David and Jonathan's relationship, it is intimate. Um, and it's not used in any other scripture in the Hebrew Bible. The closest we come to it is Ruth and Naomi. I did a little bit of digging into that. We don't even want to go there today. Maybe another day. I'm putting myself enough on the line right now. And the Song of Solomon, which is a more intimate telling of love. This is different. This is a different kind of relationship that the, the, the writers of the Bible felt like we needed to know this dimension of their relationship. It is curious for sure. Interpreting the stories of David and Jonathan as more than friends, that scholarship has been there for a very long time. Did not know that. Uh, around this, between the 7th and the 8th century, there were a group of Jewish rabbis called the Masoretes that developed a Masoretic text. Now, I'm going to get a little bit geeky for just a second, but I need you to go with me, okay? The Hebrew scriptures had been translated into Greek in Jesus' day, the Septuagint. The Jewish scholars felt like in this medieval time, felt like this was not a really good translation for them. It didn't quite encapsulate how they saw God, how they saw themselves in God. So they wrote from the Septuagint and they adapted it back into the original Hebrew language. Does that make sense? I know it's confusing. But sometimes in your, if you have a study Bible, you will see like a little footnote that says, this is not in the Masoretic text, or this is in the Masoretic text. And that's all it's saying, that it's from the, mid, the Middle Ages, that these Jewish rabbis, these, some of these Jewish Masoretic rabbis, they saw this relationship between the two of them as love, as intimate love. So this is not a new idea. Um, I think that for those of us that have been studying the Bible for all these centuries, we've kind of watered it down because probably it made us uncomfortable. And we don't like discomfort. I'm going to read some of those translations to you in a little bit, but let's move on. So for context, Samuel was written, the first and second Samuel, were written while the, while the Jewish people were in Babylonian captivity. We are talking 1,020 to 920 BCE. It took them 60 years to write some of this stuff that we read in our Hebrew Scriptures. This is not as history was unfolding, somebody was writing down on a scroll. That is not the way it was taught. It was transmitted orally. And centuries later, while they're in Babylonian captivity, they decide to write their stories down. Now, why would they do that? I would encourage you this week, if you're a podcast listener, to go to the Bible for Normal People by Pete Enns, and he does a beautiful job of, do, of encapsulating 1 Samuel, and it's called Pete Ruins 1 Samuel, and it's amazing, and he's really good, and he's a lot funnier than me. So you listen to that this week if you want to, but he talks about in this podcast the reason they wrote this down while they were in captivity was to remind them who they are, where they came from, 
because they were losing that sense of themselves. I have been away from the South, Alabama slash Mississippi for three years now. There's parts of it I'm quite glad to forget about. But there's other parts and senses of it that's just, it's just different. It doesn't, I went home at Christmas and I told my husband, let's go home. And that might be the first time I have referred to this as home. I do remember where I came from. But for these people, for the Jewish people, it had been centuries. They had no idea what their history was other than what the elders taught orally. They thought, we need to mark this. This needs to go down so it continues through the generations. They also wrote this to offer hope to the Jewish people in Babylon. It won't always be this way, guys. We'll eventually get out of here. God will quit being angry at us and we'll be let out of captivity. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to change. It's going to change. And this is the hope that we have that, that God is going to turn this thing around. In the Bible for Normal People, when Pete ruins 1 Samuel, he says that Samuel was written by multiple authors who had an axe to grind. Now what does that mean? They believed that they were in captivity because of this period of Jewish history. Because, do you remember the stories of God said, you don't need a king. I'm telling you, you don't need a king. And what did the people say? Well, we gots to have a king. And so what did God do? Have at it, but you won't like it. And guess what? They didn't like it. It didn't work out so well. Because God had a different idea of how he wanted the people, his people, to live and move and be in their life and in their world. So they believed in this Babylonian captivity. We've been punished because of what happened in 1 Samuel and in Chronicles and Judges. And so we don't want to do that again, but we need to understand that we're here. We're here because of what they did. And this was an ax to grind. So there's some heroic heroicism of David that you'll see with Goliath and all these good things, but David's not always depicted very well in some of these stories. Not always. And so you have to, it, it's helpful to us that they believed setting up a kingship doomed them to exile. And this is the thought process, all that I just mentioned, that went into writing this text. Now, as far as cultural context of Samuel, I shared with you back in October my dissertation where I wrote about same-sex eroticism and biblical interpretation, and I swore <laughs> after I wrote that thing, it took me two years to write it, I didn't want to talk about it ever again. I'm done. Well, the world just doesn't work that way, does it? So here we are again, and we're going to be talking about same-sex eroticism and biblical interpretation. I have stacks of books in my office, stacks. And I don't know how many articles that I read. And they all pretty much agree on one thing. Male homosexuality was rampant in, big, in biblical times. It was not that big of a deal. It was the way it was. 
um, this uh, Middle Eastern anthropologist that I read said, um, it may not have been as general as it was in Greece, but the folks' mores certainly didn't regard it with any degree of disapproval. What was disapproved of was the practice of pederasty. We won't get into that. We'll talk about it later. But that was definitely looked down upon for a lot of good reasons. But there was also another reason that did get, there was also another way that it did get frowned upon. And that was uh, men expressing themselves as effeminate. And I'm going to get to that in a minute too. Most of the tribes around the Israelites, at least for the men, because nobody was writing about women's sexual preferences, same-sex eroticism was not frowned upon. The Philistines, the Canaanites, the Midianites. It was hard, it's hard to imagine that the Israelites didn't see this and practice in front of them or knew about it. Or It'd be hard, right? It'd be like, I don't know. I, I don't have a contemporary context to relate it to. Maybe I'll think of something later. But it would be hard for them not to know that this was a thing. It's hard to imagine that they were not influenced by it. Now we also have to remember that preferences in who we are attracted to, or for lack of better words, sexual orientation, that was not a thing. That was not a thing. There was no, I, there was no thought process that a woman would only be attracted to another woman and a man just to a man. That was not a thing. For a man to be attracted to other men and only be attracted to other men, that was considered prostitution, and that was frowned upon as effeminate. Again, I'm going to pick up on that in a minute. For a man to be attracted to only men and have relationships with only men, that was not acceptable. To be a real man... You had to desire relations with men and women. It was thought to be manly. Isn't that weird? That's so weird to us in this modern day context, isn't it? But that's what a man was. Of course a man would want to have relations with whatever walked in front of them. That's what a man does. Isn't that something? It was expected on some level that a man would want to be with another man. It was considered manly, well-rounded. I'm a man, a warrior. Okay. So let's go back to the effeminacy. <laughs> as long as men and women have had breath, we have clutched our dang pearls over what is manly, what's masculine. I mean, give me a break. Heavens to Pete. I, I told you I follow these crazy, I almost said stupid, that's not nice. I follow these crazy Thea bros on Twitter that are all the time talking about what real masculinity is. And it's just bull. It's just bull. And why do we care that much? Why? I, why in the world? I was growing up with, uh, I had a set of godparents, and they had a son, Scott, who was four years younger than me, and he was the same age as my brother. And we would go over there and play all the time. And Scott was referred to uh, by my parent, I won't call out which one in case they're watching, 
Anyway, you know who you are. <laughs> Was referred to as a sissy because he didn't want to get dirty. And if he hurt himself, he ran to his mama for a Band-Aid and he would cry like a six, seven, eight-year-old boy should do. But he was a sissy in my house. And I remember thinking, what? He's, he's bleeding. He has a broken bone. Shouldn't he be crying? Don't he, he needs a Band-Aid. And then I have, a, I have an aunt and an uncle. A few years ago, my dad said that... Um, <laughs> He was making reference to my Aunt Lori, and uh, he said, well, we know who wears the pants in that family. And I said, Dad, first of all, that metaphor doesn't work anymore because everybody wears pants. <laughs> Can we rest it? And second of all, why does it matter? Why do you care? It's not your marriage. It's not your home. Why do you care? It's none of our business. He had nothing to say to that. And I just want to say this about some of you that I get the privilege of watching your little guys in front of me all the time. I am so proud of you for the way you're raising your kids. I'm just so proud of y'all. And I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. You're doing a great job. I wish I knew better when I was younger. I wish I knew better. I love seeing these little boys come up with their toenails painted. I just think that's the best thing in the world. He wanted to paint his toenails. Okay, let's paint your toenails. I asked the little guy, who painted your toenails? My dad did. Oh, awesome. This is how we break that mess, y'all, of what's masculine and what's feminine. Ugh, anyway, would to God that we could just label one another as kind, thoughtful, generous, fair, assertive, Plain spoken, without guile or manipulation, gentle, meek, cries easily. Back to our reading. The different translations through the years have not been quite as faithful to translate some of these words that we just read about David and Jonathan. In the NIV, I do like this translation. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. In the contemporary English Bible, soon David and Jonathan became best friends. That's not what the Hebrew says. <laughs> it goes a little bit further than that. Um, in the common English, Jonathan's life became bound up with David's life. I think that's beautiful. In the King James, of all things, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own. To knit, in this particular case, means to tie physically or mentally in love. And for the soul, the soul is the person, the appetite, the mind, the living being, the desire, the emotion, the passion. That's what it means by souls. And loved is a Hebrew word that means human love for one another. It includes family, 
and sexual, or the act of just being a friend. It means human love for human object. First, of man toward man, of man toward himself, between man and woman, and sexual desire. It could mean any of those things. It could mean all of those things. But this is the kind of love that Jonathan and David had for one another. So we get to pick which one we think it might be. When it says in 2 Samuel, when, Jonathan, when David realizes Jonathan and Saul are dead, he says of Jonathan and Saul, How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved were you to me. This is the Hebrew word of man toward man, of man toward himself, between man and woman, sexual desire. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love, same Hebrew word, of women. David loved Jonathan back. Whether or not it went beyond friendship, who knows? Who knows? That's why I'm sitting down <laughs> to remind myself I don't really know. Neither do you. <laughs> Neither does anybody else. I don't care what they say. Nobody really knows. We weren't there. Does it matter? I guess it depends on who we ask. Maybe for some people it really does matter. I don't really know. That's a question you get to ask yourself. But here's what I'm taking away from the story of David and Jonathan. To be knit to someone, to be tied physically, to be mentally in love or in league with, to the soul of another person, our appetite, our mind, our living being, our desires, our emotion, our passion. How amazing would it be if we loved like this? with our person, with our appetites, with our minds, with ourselves, with our desires, with our emotions, with our passions. Rabbi Bryna was talking to me also at that day about what it, they had had a uh, funeral that week. And so I was very curious as to what that looks like. And she was describing to me a Jewish funeral. And she said that in a Jewish funeral, someone is always with the body. The body is never alone. But there is also a special group of people in a, in, in, in a temple that they just minister to the body after it is deceased. A group of four or five people. It'll be four or five men if it's a male decedent, decedent and female if it's a female. And they go in together as a group, and they wash and clean the body. The family doesn't know who's in that group. It changes. You know why? To spare the person that's still living any kind of embarrassment. <laughs> My heavens. As soon as she said that, I just choked up. <laughs> What a beautiful thing. But the reason they do it, the reason that Rabbi Bryna gave me was 
just as this person did not enter this world alone, they don't leave this world alone either. And that's why they never leave the body. Can you imagine anything more beautiful? For me, this is what it means to be knit together in love. That is love. May we learn how to love better through the example of David and Jonathan and the love they displayed for one another.